Happy Lord's Day. It's good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning, and it has been such a wonderful day of celebration so far, uh, delighting in Michelle's baptism, in the singing of the Word, in the reading of God's Word, and, and now we will listen to God's Word preached before celebrating the Lord's Supper together. What a, a joyous day it is. What, what a big day of celebration. And as we come to Matthew chapter 3 and verses 13 through 17, we find ourselves in a big text that tells us about our big God. In this text, we see the transcendence of God and his eminence. There are a whole lot of things happening in these few verses. It's as if our passage is pregnant and the babies just keep on coming out. Lots of connections to be made. And if you've been been coming to the Wednesday night uh, course on reading the Bible and on hermeneutics, some of what you'll see this morning are a whole lot of those canonical connections being made. It's my intent to show this morning that when Jesus is baptized, he is being identified as prophet, priest, servant, and king. But before we get to that, I do want to say here at the front end that the shape of our passage is a Trinitarian one. In this passage, we have God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son all on the stage of the world together. The Son is embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Spirit rests on him, anointing him for his work. And the Father is endorsing him as king, as his beloved son. Signals us to the significance of this event. And I just want to say before we go into the text, because we're not actually going to spend a ton of time on uh, the Trinity this morning. I do want to say this. Uh, To be a Christian is to believe in the triune God. To know Jesus rightly is to know him in relationship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Indeed, we see all three here this morning. The main thing that's happening in our passage is that Jesus is once again being identified as king. Remember, that's Matthew's whole goal in this sort of prolonged introduction to his gospel. He wants to show us that Jesus is the son of David, who brings the blessing of Abraham to all nations. And so he shows us that Jesus has the right pedigree in chapter 1. He shows us he fulfills the right prophecies in chapter 2. And here in chapter 3, he's showing us that Jesus has the right endorsements. He is endorsed by God the Father and by God the Holy Spirit as the promised messianic king. And so if you just want sort of the concise version of a main idea this morning. It's just that Jesus is king. John the Baptist has been saying, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming, repent. And now we see that Jesus has come, the king has come, and this baptism is his coronation. With that said, would you stand up in honor of reading God's holy and perfect word? Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John 
to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to see me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. May he carve its eternal truth on our hearts. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us recognize all that's happening in this text this morning. Give us eyes to see Jesus consecrating himself as a priest, identifying himself as a prophet, revealing himself as Isaiah's suffering servant, as well as taking on that anointing that is due to him because he is king. Lord, in his baptism, We have a portrait both of our salvation and of his mission. We pray that you would make your word live to us this morning. Show us yourself in your word. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior. Make the book live to us. Lord, we thank you that indeed you have called us together to worship you here this morning. We thank you that you have done the same thing across the globe, that there are those who have worshipped you already today, those who are worshipping you now, and those who will worship you as the day continues. We thank thank you that your glory is scattered across the globe, and that the name of Jesus is being praised. We praise him together now as we listen to your word proclaimed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus comes to John to be baptized. This is surprising. John is surprised. He even says, I should be baptized by you. You know, why, why is it surprising to John? Why should it be surprising to us? I fear we've become so accustomed to the scene of Jesus in the river being baptized that it doesn't sort of crash upon us like lightning as it should. Jesus has no sin. Jesus is greater than John. And do you remember that John said his baptism is for repentance? Jesus is sinless. He has no need to repent of any sins. He hasn't got any. And so it's surprising that he comes to John and asks for baptism. Moreover, he's he's greater than John. John said that he's not even worthy to carry Jesus' Nikes. 
He's not worthy of him. He's not worthy of menial slave work. He baptizes merely with water. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who pours out the Holy Spirit. Jesus, he says, is the one who will judge with an unquenchable fire, separating wheat from the chaff. He tells us Jesus holds the winnowing fork. John recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, even now. And so when Jesus comes to him to be baptized, he raises his eyebrows. Really? I, I can't baptize you. You're, you're not my disciple. You're greater than I am. And Jesus says, it's necessary or fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That enigmatic phrase to fulfill all righteousness, provides for us the reason why Jesus must go down into the waters of baptism. And it means plainly that Jesus is demonstrating his willingness to obey the word and the will of God. And his commitment to obey the word and the will of God perfectly in a way that all others who have preceded him have failed He will be the perfect high priest who offers himself as a sacrifice for his people, who lives forever after the order of Melchizedek to make intercession for those who trust in him. He will be the great prophet who chooses to identify with his people and to lead them out of the waters of God's judgment. Indeed, Jesus will prove himself to be the perfectly righteous servant of the Lord, described throughout Isaiah. And Jesus will be revealed by the Father as the King who is promised, the one to whom all nations will pay homage. It is a surprising episode, but Jesus is committed to baptism to show all of these things, to fulfill all righteousness. Indeed, all the promises of God find their yes in him. He is a priest. It's pretty well known throughout the Old Testament, priests had to, in order to work in the temple, go through ritual washings would represent their being cleansed and being made holy, being allowed to go into the presence of God on behalf of the people. And so Jesus here, he, he doesn't have any sins to be cleansed of, but as he steps into the water, he is following that ritual. He's demonstrating that he is a priest, that he is pure, that he is holy, that he is fit for the role of priest to represent the people before God and ultimately God to the people. It is interesting. He waited until the age of 30 to do this. He's 30 years old at this point. In, in Jewish life, the typical age of things beginning in a man's life was the age of 30. It's no mistake that 30 is the age Levitical priests would take up the full work of carrying out the work of a priest in the temple. Most prophets come into that career at the age of 30. David ascended to his throne as king at the age of 30. 
And so Jesus has turned 30, and now he is beginning his mission with this inauguration as king, and with this ritual cleansing that shows he is a priest. It really is amazing that he waited all this time. Imagine a teenager knowing that they are the savior of the world, having them around the house a little bit. I think of myself as a teenager, I don't know that I would have waited. And like telling everybody, I'm the savior of the world, did you know? But Jesus waits through his teens and his 20s. He waits until God's timing. Friends, we ought not abhor waiting And we ought to be ready to wait on the Lord as Jesus did, with patience. One of the most important lessons we can learn as Christians is that God will not be hurried by us. That he operates according to his own calendar. And our response to this should not be to wring our hands with with worry as sweat pours down our temples. But instead to trust him. Even when his work seems slow. Jesus steps into his role as a priest. He steps into the waters of baptism to consecrate himself to set himself apart to service of the Lord. And Jesus also steps into the waters to identify himself as a prophet. You'll notice, interestingly, that when John announces the coming of the kingdom, he does so by saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus, when he begins his ministry, He begins it the same way, with the same words. In verse 17 of chapter 4, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is a prophet like John, who will lead the people by proclaiming to the people God's holy word. Indeed, he's a prophet like Moses. Remember that imagery? He's going to come. He's been called out of Egypt as a child after escaping genocide. He's going through the waters of baptism now, and he's going to be on the mountain from where he declares God's word to God's people in the Sermon on the Mount. We are to see him as the prophet who brings God's message, as the prophet who identifies with God's people like Moses did. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing instead to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. As Moses left Pharaoh's palace to share in the sufferings of God's people, Jesus leaves heaven's throne to endure suffering on behalf of God's people. 
when Jesus steps into the waters of baptism, he does so sinlessly. But he does so to associate himself with sinners. We just saw Michelle this morning was baptized. And baptism makes God's work in us visible. We, we took her underneath the waters of judgment, seeing her old self be drowned. And then we, we brought her out to walk in the newness of life. What we're doing in baptism, what she's doing in baptism, was identifying with Jesus. She's saying, my faith is in Jesus. I've been united to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' death counts as my death. Jesus' life counts as my life. And just as he came out of the grave, so too shall I unto eternal life. And as Jesus goes down into the waters of baptism, he too is associating himself not with God, not with himself, the, the sinless one, but with sinful humanity. It's as if he wants to make sure we know that he is with us and for us. Think of it this way. If you want to identify a policeman or a fireman, or a football player, what's one of the first things you look for? The, the uniform, right? The uniform identifies the person. When Jesus goes into the waters of baptism, he's not only putting on priestly garments and consecrating himself to God's service. He's also putting on the team jersey of humanity. He's saying I came to seek and save sinners. I am with humanity. One commentator considers this incident to be Jesus' first miracle. This is what he says. It is a miracle of Jesus' humility. The first thing Jesus Christ does for the human race is go down with it into the waters of repentance and baptism. Jesus' whole life will be like this. It is well known that Jesus ends his ministry between two thieves. It deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. From his baptism to his execution, Jesus identifies with us at every point, becoming as one with us and our humanity, as he is completely one with God in eternity. This is what baptism portrays. Baptism demonstrates for us the great exchange of Christianity. We deserve to be drowned in the waters of God's judgment. Jesus deserves eternal life together with God, receiving all of his blessings. And yet he chooses to identify with us so that he might die for our sins. And so that we can identify with him 
by faith and receive all the blessings that are rightfully his. Jesus undergoes this baptism in the Jordan at the front end of his ministry, and it anticipates his baptism beneath the wrath of God at the end of his ministry on the cross. He is announcing even now, I came to seek and save sinners and to lead them through the waters of judgment and into the presence of God. Jesus is a prophet like Moses. He brings his people into God's presence, who leads them in the way of righteousness. It is Jesus who brings us to God. Jesus identifies with us so that we can identify with him. That's it's radical. It's incredible. Jesus identifies with us such that his death becomes our death, his life becomes our life, and what's true of him is true of us. Look at verse 17. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's true of you if you are a Christian. Not in the sense that, you know, God's declaring that he's the king, the chosen son, the, the ruler of the cosmos. You're not that. But you are loved by the Father in Christ. He does call you son. You, Christian, can substitute your name in the place of the word this. And it will describe to you how God feels about you in Christ. John is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Carol is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Michelle is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Tony is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is a world-shattering truth that a sinner like you and like me can have the pleasure of God, the love of God, that he would delight in us. It's incredible. Rest in this good news, Christian. It's the name of Jesus that we take on to ourselves when we are baptized. It's this truth that is being portrayed when we go into the waters of baptism, that we have been made one with Christ. We might amend the words to the children's song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for his baptism tells me so. Baptized ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. Verse 17 is true of you in Christ, Christian. Non-Christian. Verse 17 is not true of you. God is angry with the wicked every day. And God is angry with you. Now, Christian, God is offended by your vile sin against him. 
He is opposed to you. He might say of you, this is a rebel and an evildoer, one whom my anger burns against. You, non-Christian, are not at peace with God. You are under his wrath. And you are but a breath away from an eternity of conscious torment. It is right punishment for your rebellion. But the good news this morning is this. You can have your name in verse 17. You can be adopted into the family of God. Jesus' death can count as your death. Good Friday can count as your judgment day. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead can be a preview of your own resurrection from the dead. Will you repent and believe? Believe and be baptized. Tell someone of your decision. Tell, tell me after church. This is good news. Christian, this is good news that brings great joy, is it not? How can we not share the gospel, this marvelous, wonderful, mysterious gospel with our friends and our family and with those who are in our community, that they need not be God's enemies, but that they can be God's friends. More than that, they can be God's sons and God's daughters, that they can know and worship the God they were made for. How can you not share this? Well, let us be a people that act like prophets, that go out and say, repent, the kingdom of heaven is coming. The king has come and he is coming soon. Put your faith in him. Jesus' baptism reveals him to be a prophet like Moses who leads his people out of the waters of judgment and into the presence of God. And Jesus' baptism reveals him to be the mysterious servant of the Lord. Look again at verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This is not insignificant. It's tied to our scripture reading this morning. When the messianic hope of Isaiah, this, the servant of the Lord, has the spirit rest on him. There are many passages like this. I'm just going to read you two more. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of the vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn 
Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. The servant of Isaiah who bears the iniquity of his people and brings justice to the nations. The servant who brings good news to the poor. The servant who binds up the brokenhearted. The servant who doesn't break a bruised reed. The servant who doesn't put out a smoldering wick. The servant in whom the Lord delights is the Lord's beloved Son. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who will fulfill all righteousness by bringing the vengeance of God to the wicked and the comfort of God to those who mourn. It is no mistake that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted by Him, for He will achieve their salvation and bring them into the presence of God. The Holy Spirit resting on Jesus is a sign that Jesus is the servant of the Lord promised by Isaiah. Now you might wonder, why does the Holy Spirit take the form of a dove as it rests on Jesus? Think about it for a second. Where else in the Bible do we see doves? All of you, of course, are thinking of the priestly sacrifices in Leviticus. None of y'all thought about that. Don't lie. Now, we're thinking about Genesis. And we're thinking about Noah and the ark. You remember God's judgment comes on all the earth and only Noah and his family take refuge in God's provision inside of the ark. And, and there they are safe from God's judgment. And after the rain ceases, Noah sends out a dove. Initially, it comes back with nothing. He sends out another one. It comes back with an olive branch, a symbol of, of peace and rest. He sends out another one. It never comes back. And it's a sign that things are back to normal. That there's a new creation at hand. Plants are growing. Noah recognizes that it's over. Salvation is here. Peace has come. The judgment of God has given way to his graciousness. And Noah heads up a new creation. We see all of this in Jesus. He's the king who's bringing his kingdom, who's beginning a new creation. He is the one who brings salvation. His name means Yahweh is here. He's named Jesus, we're told back in chapter 1, because he will save his people from their sins. 
And his act of rescuing people from their sins corresponds to Noah's ark. That's why the dove is here. Peter makes this connection in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he says that baptism corresponds to the flood. Verse 21, 1 Peter chapter 3. Baptism, which corresponds to this, that's Noah and the ark, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. In the story of Noah, the floodwaters of God's judgment come. The dove is a sign that God has brought them safely through his judgment. In our baptism, we go under the water as a way to show that we are also passing through the waters of God's judgment. And when we come out, we are recognizing that we pass through this judgment by faith in Jesus Christ. We are confessing that he is our salvation. That he is the ark that carries his people through the flood of God's wrath. The Holy Spirit's presence as a dove is a sign that Jesus will save his people from their sins. It's a sign that salvation has come. Jesus will fulfill all righteousness by being the sin-bearing servant of the Lord who brings peace to God's people. And Jesus will fulfill all righteousness by being announced as king and defeating all of God's enemies, even death. Look at verse 17. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Spurgeon called this the greatest sermon preached by the greatest preacher. God the Father preaching a sermon about the identity of God the Son. The scene's incredible. The sky splits apart. The Holy Spirit descends and the Father speaks. It's reminiscent of the prayer in Isaiah 63, verse 19. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend, split apart the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. The heavens are split asunder, and God is making his name known to all. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are revealed in Christ. In Christ, God has come to earth. Heaven and earth meet in this person, in this King. He is the King who will rule all nations. My beloved son is a direct connection to Psalm 2, which we read together this morning. Kiss the son, lest his anger be kindled. Pledge allegiance to Jesus, lest you face his wrath. Be baptized by Jesus' Holy Spirit. 
or be baptized by the fire of his judgment. Jesus is the coming king. He is the beloved son. And again, that that language, it pulls our attention back to Genesis and to another beloved son. Remember in Genesis 22, Isaac is the son of promise. Abraham is a king. And Isaac is the heir. And what does God ask Abraham to do in verse 2 of Genesis 22? Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham obeys. He begins his ascent up the mountain with nothing in his hand but knife and fire. And Isaac carries the wood. Isaac asks him, "Uh, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham responds, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And they continue on. What a march it would have been up the mountain, step after step. God will provide, my son. And eventually they get to the top and there's no sacrifice. And Abraham knows what he must do. He must obey God. He must demonstrate his love for God even more than his love for his son. So he arranges the wood, builds an altar, and he binds Isaac to it. Hebrews later tells us that he reasoned in his mind that God could raise up Isaac from the dead. And he takes the knife ready to cut the throat of the sacrifice. Abraham! Abraham! Don't lay a hand on the boy. Relief! Joy! God says, Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. There's a ram caught in the thicket. Abraham sacrifices and worships. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God the Father has done far more than Father Abraham. He has provided a sacrifice to take not just the place of Isaac and of Abraham and of all Israel and of you and me, but of all who will trust in Christ. God the Father sends God the Son to take a second nature onto himself so that he might do what was foretold in Genesis 22. That he, the true promised Son, the true heir of the universe might die on behalf of his people so that they might live. That he, 
might be received back from the dead, victorious to the joy of his church. Jesus is the king, and his death is the twist. He's the priest who sacrifices himself for God's people. He is the servant who is stricken, stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us. He is the prophet who reveals God's word and judgment. He is the king who is crucified on behalf of all who trust in him. He's also the king who lives. This is pictured in baptism, that he lives that he didn't stay in the grave, but that he walked out of it again. Jesus is the eternal priest. Jesus is the eternal prophet. Jesus is the eternal king. He cannot be killed. He's the priest who lives to make intercession for us always. He is seated at the right hand of God, on the throne of David. And before him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Christ is Lord. It's good news. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and who was Adam? But the first prophet, priest, servant, and king. As in Adam all die, Adam the unrighteous. So also in Christ, the perfectly righteous prophet, priest, servant, and king, all will be made alive. He fulfills all righteousness, but each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Christ is Lord. He is defeating all the enemies of God. He has defeated death. He will raise his people up out of death. Let us worship him together this morning. Let us remember our baptisms as we together proclaim his victory over death by sharing in the bread and the cup.